welcome to the 905er podcast. I'm Roland Tanner. I am Joel McLeod. Today we're welcoming back multi-award winning journalist Lorraine Sommerfeld to the podcast. While for readers in the Hamilton and Halton areas, Lorraine may be most loved for her long-running Motherload column in the Hamilton Spectator, Lorraine is best known across Canada as an auto-journalist who has worked for all of Canada's three big national newspapers over the past two decades, and she now writes for the National Post. But Lorraine is no stooge for the auto industry, nor is she someone who thinks all our problems will be solved by electric vehicles. She recently won an award for an article about the new dangers being brought to our roads by electric vehicles. Another article took on one of the most universally believed truisms of modern life, that the gas companies are gouging us more and more at the gas pump every day. Which leads us to the most profound question of all. How does an auto journalist who says Canadian gas is still cheap, and that what Canada really needs is not better cars, but fewer cars, manage to survive at the National Post? Uh, Lorraine Sommerfeld back to the 905er podcast. Uh, thanks for joining us again. Hey, Joel, Roland, good to be here. And uh, uh, recently award-winning um, auto journalist uh, for, the, for, the, for the National Post, and uh, you also write for The Spectator at the Mullow column. But we thought we'd speak to you today about um, kind of developments in the auto industry, I guess, and also just... just um, the fun you have as a, as an auto journalist who is not necessarily uh, an uncritical um, <laughs> ally, for want of a better word, of cars <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and things like that. So um, yeah, I mean, we just sort of dive in and 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 I mean, tell us about how. I mean, you got into auto journalism like a long time ago. Now you've been doing it. I mean, how have your kind of opinions of the industry or your attitude towards um, cars changed over the years, would you say? I think it's changing for everybody. Um, most parts of the industry are calling it mobility now. They're not even saying cars or automotive because there has to be a global fundamental change in how we use our road networks because right now it is car, 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 especially in North America. Everything is predicated on the car. And we're understanding that that is deadly and wrong and we can't keep going this way because everyone has a fundamental right to get around where they live and do that safely. So I'm becoming, as you said, more and more critical because the industry itself isn't addressing it, nor are politicians and road planners and everybody like that. And you were just saying, I mean, before we came on, I was mentioning the article you wrote, uh, which I think is the one you won the award for, which was about how, you know, something... Now, if you think electric vehicles are the answer, well, I mean, apart from anything else, they still use energy and energy is an issue, but also uh, they're a lot heavier than a conventional um, uh, internal combustion engine. So, I mean, tell us a bit about uh, uh, that side of things. One of the best lines I read the other day, and it's not mine and I wish it was, somebody said, electric cars will not solve the world's problems. They will solve the automotive maker's problems, which is very true. If you picture congestion in our most congested areas, which is Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, if you replace all those cars with electric vehicles, you have just as many cars with one person in them. That's the problem. It's not what they're driving. Yes, that absolutely contributes to environmental damage, but that's not going to cause the congestion problems. They're not going to magically go away. And the other problem is what you mentioned that I've written about a couple of times now is 
because people, North Americans especially, are addicted to these massive, massive vehicles. They're just insanely big. The SUVs, the pickup trucks. Who needs a pickup truck? I'm sorry, unless you're a farmer or a construction person. I don't get it. But we all keep buying these huge vehicles for the most part. And the only way to move this market into electric is to make replicas of those great big vehicles, but they just happen to be electric. That Ford Lightning, it's an F-150. It weighs 7,000 pounds. Sorry, I can't do the metric. That electric Hummer is 9,000 pounds. So when you do the physics, if that comes in contact with a vulnerable road user, they're about 35% heavier than a vehicle that you believe looks to weigh that much. So even if it's the size of a Corolla, it's 35% heavier with a battery and an electric battery. So that is going to fundamentally change the way our, especially urban areas are working. Yes, they have great brakes. They're still being driven by distracted drivers who speed and don't care. We have a big issue coming with this. I mean, is, 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 People keep on talking about the, you know, the, the, the on the horizon is, is the driverless car. Uh, I mean, is this the answer that's going to fix everything? No, it's not coming. No, no. Everyone's like, oh, by Tuesday. Imagine how many things have to be in place to have autom- automated vehicles. Every car has to talk to each other. It has to be absolutely bulletproof for how it performs on the road to protect a driver. It has to be speaking and interacting with the infrastructure, which let's talk about infrastructure money, people. I mean, we can't even get enough chargers in place for electrics. So this whole dream of automotive, automated vehicles, that it can only work when the cost to the driver is that we're going to remove convenience and speed. Find me a driver that's going to put up with that. Most of them will not. Safety is the thing that is going to go by the wayside every single time are we looking at a bit of like a chicken and egg problem on this one just because i'm thinking you know here in the 905 it, 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 we're basically car dependent i mean we, we've we've talked million, you know uh, our voices were hoarse about the need for public transit uh investments but we're still like right now everything is very car dependent i mean look at mississauga brampton uh uh and then up up in new york region Everything is basically sprawl. You're meant to drive from your house to the grocery store, to the mall, to do your errands. And so right now there's a list of saying, well, that's great, Lorraine. You know, yeah, we should be safer and, and, and cars aren't going to solve anything, but I need a car. My I need two cars. My wife needs one. My husband needs one. My spouse needs one. You know, how, like what, I, I'm... I'm I, I guess that's the the question. Like people might say, yeah, it's great. We should have more, you know, safer roads and fewer cars on the road. But how how do we get there? Well, here's a to me, it's a two prong three, uh, two prong problem or solution. I also have a car. There's two here, <laughs> and so I hear you. I've lived here my entire life because the failure of progressive government, successive governments. I'm sorry for decades and decades and decades, they kicked the can down the road when it comes to transit and everything else. The other thing is people want the convenience because we are based on sprawl. We, we were built poorly from the 40s on out because gas was free and land was cheap. And so that's how we get to here. I think when I see different uh, countries, especially in Europe, who take their very crowded downtown cores with high density and they just take cars right out. You can't do that anymore. It's the best solution. So people can walk and have access. So to me, start in the cores. Here in Burlington, I think from on Brant Street from Caroline to Lakeshore, that should be car free. That couple blocks, 
it should be car free. Start in the tight cores, put your density in that they all talk about and everybody wants. So start there. At the same time, stop deferring transit projects. Stop pretending everyone who doesn't have a car is inferior because frankly, they're saving more money. We have to make it more enticing and livable for people not to be beholden to having a car in the driveway. Cars are so expensive and they're deadly. So it's not one answer. It's a bunch of things, but most of it is starting to change mindsets and have people stop accepting death and pollution and pavement as the answer to everything. It's not. We have to change our thinking. Other places have done it. It's doable. It's absolutely doable, but it takes political will. And, and just actually on that point of like how in Europe, like, I remember being a child in the 1980s. So I was 10 in 1980. Around that time was about the time that every significant town in Britain pedestrianized its town center, its downtown. Um, and sometimes it would just be a single street and sometimes it would be a whole bunch of streets, but, but basically any town center was pedestrianized 40 years ago. Um, and that, that, that just kind of speaks to how incredibly behind we are. Now I'm not claiming that Britain doesn't have all kinds of traffic problems because it sure as hell does. Mm -hmm. But, um, uh, you know, I, I know that say, you know, pick, picking a random example, Burlington, <laughs> that there have been discussions about pedestrianizing Brant Street. Um, and the minute you start talking about it, there's all kinds of pushback. There's pushback from people in the BIA and not necessarily in the whole BIA, but certainly mm. some of them. Um, there's people who immediately, well, you know, I'm not good. this is going to create gridlock and, and, you know, how do we persuade people who, you know, I, I'm always saying that, 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 People are just basically small C conservative. All of us, we all are. We don't like change. We like things to stay the way they are. How do we change people's minds when, you know, even the kind of moderate levels of change that, say, the current liberal federal government tries to introduce provoke massive reactions of just yeah. all out hatred? I think maybe when we're building, like, I was about to say people hate change because you're absolutely right. They only change when it's more painful not to change. So I think as we're building new things, build it in right from the beginning, and then we're not changing back to something. So let's at least going forward, stop making the same mistakes we've made for decades. That would be a start, I think. I don't want to say we have to wait for people to die out to get change because I, you know, that's terrible. I also think We've got a lot of people as our population ages, they're going to not be able to drive anymore. Perhaps that will start changing some minds when they need to be able to get around and want to do so safely when it's not an option for them anymore. And we're going to see that happening. Whoever, you know, COVID doesn't take out, we're seeing shifts in that generation as well. And I've, I've written the cognitive test. I go, you know, I've been to the ministry with 80 year olds to see what it is. And it should scare you, some of the people driving out there. But I've also heard from people who can't get the keys out of their parents' hands or their grandparents' hands. Again, this is an absolute grenade of problems. And I don't know how to get all the different people on board around a table to try and do, and way bigger heads than mine have tried. Like I just am on the outside, you know, complaining about it a lot. But it really is going to take levels and levels and levels of people committed to making 
a better planet and to making a safer planet, protect our kids, our parents, ourselves. I, I don't know where it starts, but I don't see it happening in this country, in North America. The selfishness of drivers in North America is gobsmacking. It is well, astounding. Well, I mean, you, we, I mean, we've we've talked about uh, previous on the, on the podcast about the you know the, the shift that the Canadian auto industry is going through from an internal combustion engine to this electric engine, and this is supposed to be the big uh, uh, shift in our economy. It's, it's going to provide you know jobs and and whatnot. Like we, as as much as we want to say uh, we need to shift away from the car, like the we've we've built a ton of stuff around the car like our our uh our our, our economy our our structures like everything is built around we need to drive uh and we have it and again we kind of have this this illusion of you know the freedom of the open road right you get in your car and you just hit the gas and go as far as the gas will yeah, uh, take gas will take you you know I'm 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 just wondering like are, is there is there a common ground or a a a, uh, a compromise that can be made to kind of satisfy everyone? Because um, there'll be people living in the rural parts that are list, uh, of the province that are listening to you and saying, "Yeah, good luck taking my car away from me, Lorraine. I you know <laughs> I I need that to you know that you you know that, that I just need that just not only to go to work but to to feed my family and and whatnot." I. I absolutely agree. I think it's criminal that we don't have better choices. Our only choice is to get a car to drive somewhere. You've explained the sprawl. You explained errands and everything else. I'm in the same boat. I don't want to walk nine blocks and bring home bags of stuff. I'm lazy. I'm privileged. But I think we haven't, people should have the option to have better choices. A lot of people would take it. Running a car when you're almost broke, I've, I did it so long when my kids were little, it was brutal. It was one of the worst expenses I had. I couldn't afford a new one. I had to keep fixing an old one. I had no money. So that's not a great option for a lot of people, but they feel cornered and they absolutely are cornered. The auto industry in Canada, especially Ontario, is huge. It is a main supplier of jobs. It's a big driver. The switch to electrics, we're being told, oh, we're just going to go dig in the far north. I wrote about this last year, too. Oh, the politics involved around this are insane. To produce an electric car, they have about 30% fewer parts than an ICE. Sorry, an internal combustion engine, a regular one. Those jobs, those are the ones coming off the floor. We're going to need people working in mining, software development. Those are where the jobs are going to come in this industry. So anyone thinking that we're going to be firing up more and more lines to make batteries and to put into these cars with the legislation just passed at Biden with the Inflationary Act in the States, they're just going to take all our battery components and make them in the States because they'll get subsidies they won't get here. The Canadian auto industry is facing down some very terrifying times to come. And I think you have to read past the headlines. Yes, we're a really, really rich mining country, very rich. But other countries are just kind of going to cherry pick a lot of that off and take it back home. So basically what you're, what you're like the argument that I'm, if I'm reading between the lines is that the, the assumption, like, you know, we hear from Doug Ford, uh, premier, uh, you know, this is, we're going to create all these good auto part jobs here in, here in Ontario uh, with the, the bring a fire project and whatnot and what you're telling is basically no we're not we're going to create mining jobs up in the north 
um, ship all the, the raw materials down here to create batteries, but those that's not necessarily going to fuel an auto manufacturing uh, industry here here in Ontario. Is that, is that what I'm, I'm getting? Is that what am I, am I reading that you, right? I'm still, none of us have a crystal ball for this. Mm -hmm. What we do know is building electric vehicles is very different than building conventional vehicles. And that mining stuff, that ring of fire is going to be, a, the liberals, they've known about it for years. They didn't know how to exploit it and what to do with it. We're going to have to adjust not just the auto industry, but the indigenous groups that own that land and the impact of blowing up the carbon bog that's up there is just going to be rattling. I mean, it's a thing. It's going to happen. You can't have that rich of a deposit and not have humans exploit it. So it's going to happen. I just think it's going to be very difficult to see where these jobs are going to spit off. Traditionally, we've always been able to say this many lines in Oshawa, this many in Woodstock, like we know, you know, what's going to be built here, the hybrids move in for, you know, Pacifica. So we've been able to see where the new builds are going to come from right now with legislation in the States, we can't guarantee where the build is going to be happening. And again, fewer parts, less time to assemble these vehicles. It's, we have a huge parts industry, the spinoff from the industry is, has always been really, really big, but there's a lot of questions. Um, they don't need as much maintenance. You don't, do, you know, there's no transmission. So we're going to see a shift in repair. I, I don't know enough to know where it's going to end up. I just think we have to question when we think of the auto industry providing jobs. I think we're thinking about people on the line who can, you know, go to college or high school and then get a really good paying job that's union and go ahead. I don't know that those are going to be the kind of jobs that are going to be saved or brought in. In fact, I know they're not. They're, they're just not. They can't be it's going to be very, very high tech stuff and in different sectors. And I think we can't fool ourselves with what traditionally we're imagining the auto industry to be providing jobs, you know, in those sectors. It's and I guess different. the, the uh, not the million dollar, the quadruple billion dollar question is, is do we want to be tying our horse to a wagon that is still uh, inherently uh, a, a, an energy problem industry um you know say well you know we're going to turn mag magna from from something that creates sprockets as i understand it <laughs> bits and pieces uh, into a, a electric bits and pieces well like you say a there's fewer bits and pieces in an electric engine and electric cars um they wear out less often they they you know the, the whole uh, there's that but would we be better just sort of cutting our losses and saying Canada doesn't want to be part of this next generation of cars because we need to be getting away from cars full stop. Oh, we, we can't say that. Um, it's too big an industry. Like we can't lose the engine, so to speak, that it is. But I think every single time you talk about electric vehicles, somebody will come in and say, what about what it you know, costs to produce them and what's the environmental impact? And then someone else will say, oh, by year, pick a number, five, six, seven, it all washes. And after that, it's clean sailing. Or, you know, what about the cost of making the electricity to charge that battery? So everyone can pick their boogeyman and come at it. And again, I don't know enough about all these different sectors to tell you which one makes the most sense. We've always known that extracting these ores and minerals, especially in geopolitical hot spots around the world, has always been, it's like diamonds, it's like oil. 
there is always going to be people who are going to die because I want to drive my hatchback. That's a fact, no matter whether it's an EV or a hybrid or an ICE. And it's really hard to know the, the media. I'm the media. The headlines can be incredibly misleading. And I, I wish I had better answers for where this industry needs to go. It's a huge industry. We're always going to have cars. We are geographically huge. And so is the states. It's going to happen. Talk about you know high-speed trains. They talk about that. Most of us do not want to be inconvenienced. And that's where the change is going to be the most difficult because my convenience tops everyone else's problems. And well, that's who I, we are. I'll, I'll be honest. I, I'm not ready to give up my family car anytime soon. Um, I have relatives that live on the East coast of Canada. And uh, before gas was uh, the price of a small country, <laughs> uh, I, I could, uh, we, we would drive out East and I, I, I I'm not going to lie. I, I like the drive. I, I love driving through Quebec, New Brunswick, uh, out to Nova Scotia and PEI. It's a fantastic drive. I, I do suggest if you have a chance, people go do it yourself. It's a, it's a great way to see the country. It's amazing. That's great. It is. And we, we have a, we have a beautiful country and a part of the joy is being able to get in your car and drive away. Mm-hmm. But, and so that's why I, I guess I'm thinking that, you know, we're, we, you're right. We're never going to get rid of the, the car. I can't see that happening but this popped in my head as you were talking about the the shift in the industry and i think it's a, the problem is a bit of a lack of imagination in the part of our political leaders surprise surprise <laughs> uh is that this we're, again it's that assumption of okay we're going to make electric cars but we're still going to have lines at ford and oshawa uh, you know the oakville and oshawa plants and up in brampton at gm or at chrysler they just make electric cars and what you're saying is no that's not the case and i'm thinking with every crisis there is an opportunity and that we're talking about a fundamental shift in the way that our economy operates we're going from the idea of a manufacturing economy of doing this line work of you know the guy the guy or the girl sitting on the line putting the bolt in the door you know putting the seat in the car and all that like that will go the way of the dinosaur even even that job as automation takes hold, will go away. The, it'll be easier for a robot just to assemble the car, the, the seat and the dashboard and the, the doors on and, and put the paint on and everything as opposed to paying somebody to do it. In that shift, isn't there an opportunity there to kind of reinvent the the Canadian city for the kind of the 21st century that we get away from this idea of sprawl and, and buying a car? What, like everybody could have a car, but maybe instead of two or three cars, everybody just has one car. One would be brilliant. Smaller would be more brilliant. We started to go to compacts about 20 years ago. Oil, gas was just too cheap. That's the only thing that moves the needle at all. But right now, if every single oversized pickup and SUV was replaced, I call it right-sizing. Why can't we right-size the vehicles and the houses we live in? Let's go there as well. Most people don't need, my boyfriend takes my hatchback surfing. He puts three boards in it. The thing swallows everything. Like, it, you know, we think we, everyone says, I feel safer because I feel I'm higher up. And the fact is the people inside those SUVs, you've never been safer. They're absolutely right. The safety ratings are great. It's everyone around them that's getting destroyed. So it's at a cost of, we have to care about everyone else, not just ourselves. That's a hard sell when you got a family. When they say we're going to, protect your family. Okay. Sign me up for that. Of course I want that. Only 
the cost is so high. And I, I've got to call them out today about Halloween tonight because kids' deaths and injuries spike on Halloween night because of drivers. And it's always gotten worse. Now we've got these huge vehicles with all these blind spots. Manufacturers make them all big and high because consumers want them. Then they have to lo- just load in sensors and cameras so that people can see around in their vehicle. They can't see. Um, NHTSA in the States is now saying they want to mandate having front over sensors because people are running over their kids in the front. We've mandated backup cameras. Now they want to mandate front cameras because people can't see outside of where they're driving. How crazy are we? This is nuts. We're killing each other because we feel safer and entitled to have these massive vehicles that we don't even need. You don't need to drive around with your living room. If you need a bigger vehicle once a year to take Graham up north, go for it. Rent one. But it's, uh, it's especially a how, Especially where, I mean, I moved to Hamilton a year ago and I don't currently own a car and it was kind of an experiment. And there are certainly days when I wish I had a car and I could just jump in and drive. Um, but they're not that many of them, actually. Uh, by and large, they're pretty few and far between. And you, Hamilton has... Um, well, there's the zip car and there's uh, what's something called commune auto and um, you can rent a car for about three hours for about 35 bucks mm-hmm. uh, and that's that I mean on a dollar for dollar basis it works out so much cheaper um, now I'm tooting my own trumpet there but you certainly I'm not claiming that you don't lose a level of convenience but you, you gain a whole lot of money um, that's for sure and I'm wondering if maybe that's I'm wondering if I mean if, if self-driving cars do happen and and uh, like you i'm kind of a lot more skeptical about how whether that can actually happen you know like the last one percent they need to get to make a a self-driving car to be as safe as a human is a really difficult percentage point to 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 get to is is my understanding no let me can i just butt in sorry Mm -hmm. i don't want to be rude if we took driver drivers are the cause of almost every crash 99 percent of crashes i don't call them accidents you'll notice there's no such word so actually removing that removing the driver would make everything safer like it really would it's and all the stuff is available for autonomous features all the things the um, collision control the lane departure warnings all the things we have already that's all autonomous features and they know it but when you've got clowns, um, most of them are driving Teslas. Sorry, Tesla fanboys. When that's that's who wants to YouTube, so that's they're all over YouTube, and now they've opened up investigations because they hop in the back seat and it drives into a tree. None of these systems are that good yet, and they will tell you they almost are. Well, we've got five levels of autonomy that's defi- defined by a global engineering thing. We're at level two. The driver has to be prepared to take the steering wheel at all times but people are testing it and testing it because that's what people do and it's and asking someone to sit in a chair doing nothing for hours on end but be just as aware as if they were driving seems to me to be kind of asking for trouble and that's the human factor and that's the problem we have because human beings are crazy human beings are unpredictable and if there's anything you want on the road it's predictability that's why i kind of harp away at people when I say, put your indicator on, put your indicator on. They go, there's no cars around. I go, pedestrians need to know what you're doing. Cyclists need to know what you're doing. Other drivers need to know that you know what you're doing. Like if you're, you know, a lane that's exiting, definitely put your indicator on anyway. I want to know that you know that that lane is ending. 
human beings are highly unpredictable and that's the part we can't get around. They step off curbs. Yep. Everyone yells at pedestrians for having their face in their phone. You still don't get to kill them. You're ultimately in control of a moving weapon. You don't get to kill someone because they're stupid. Well, that's, I mean, certainly one of the, one of the, um, Actually, I don't think it was an episode we did. I think it, I was just I was just shooting my mouth off on Twitter as as happens, <laughs> um, and it was something to do with the the road system in in Hamilton and the just insane spate of deaths that happened in Hamilton earlier this year. It's horrible. Uh, uh, and I attracted a bunch of of kind of. Um, blame the pedestrian people for want of it. I don't know what else to call them. Kind yeah, of my best friends. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, we'll come on to that as well in a second. And But that was the mentality is like, you know, the, the if you're a pedestrian, you make a mistake, then the death sentence is totally justified, right? You know, <laughs> uh, and it's like, seriously? Is that, that you know, we don't... <laughs> You think that's kind of the human condition, though, is that whenever something goes wrong, we immediately find a reason why it couldn't have happened to us, because then that makes us feel safer or better. And so when something, you know, if somebody gets stabbed at three in the morning, well, I don't go out at three in the morning, therefore I'm safe. Or if someone gets, you know, anything like that, hit by a drunk at 1 a.m., well, I don't go to bars at 1 a.m. now, but I spent lots of years doing that. Mm -hmm. But I think we instinctively think of the reasons why it couldn't happen to us. And then we feel safe and we go on our way. And it's almost a defense mechanism, I think, to stay alive because there's so much coming at us, you know, in every which way. But blaming pedestrians and other road users, it's handy. And sometimes it might even be right, but the cost is too different. The cost is just too different. And oh. I don't know, I, I think even the way we quantify, we'll say fatalities, we add up fatalities. They never say life-altering injuries. You never see that one highlighted. That's the one we should mm -hmm. be talking about. Because if you hit six people, oh, there was no fatalities. Tell me what happened to those six people that got hit on a sidewalk. Because guess what? Their lives are forever changed. And it could be a broken hand. It could be a wheelchair for life. We don't, we don't advertise this, right? One thing, I, I'll, I'll, kind of, I'll jump to your defense role on, on bad drivers in Hamilton. Because every time I go to Hamilton, I get off the 403 onto Main Street. That thing is, what, a six-lane Nightmare. boulevard just barreling through the middle of the city and as soon as you get off the highway you're like okay i need to switch over a few lanes i need to, i need to get off like the, the you go into the fast lane as soon as you turn your your blinker somebody always speeds up right into your blind spot mm -hmm. nine times out of ten it's like no the blinker isn't a single okay i'm going to speed up and fill that void it's make a room i need to get over Drives me nuts. That's my that's my rant for the day. Well, have you ever tried to get out of the HOV lanes? It's the same thing. People are so angry oh, you're yeah, in yeah, the yeah. HOV lanes that they won't let you out. Well, you, this the, is the, the funny thing with the HOV lanes is you're driving, and you say, "Okay, I need you need to get out of the HOV lane like two or three exits before the exit that you need to get get to, because you need to get out and they need to jump across like three or four lanes of traffic to get to the exit, which is a little redundant." And, uh, I mean, we've got a couple of minutes left, really, but um, I mean, you're an auto journalist. You write in the auto pages of national newspapers. I mean, you've worked for the Global Mail, you've worked for the Star, you've worked for, uh, currently with the National Post. Um, how, you know, and those sections, I mean, they basically exist to sell cars, right? They, you know, it's like mm -hmm. the advertising that goes along with those articles is about selling the latest car and, um, you know, uh, how 
are you doing yourself out of a job and and how do your readers um how do the kind of readers who turn to the auto sections of the newspaper or you know click to the auto pages of the newspaper these days i guess how, how do they react to you saying hey you know cars are a huge problem right i i think uh, i mean i still have a job it'd be nice to keep it for a while um, i have protection <laughs> a little bit of an umbrella as a columnist which as you know is different than i'm not a journalist but I think you need those voices and anyone who writes contrary things, especially in the opposite side market, <laughs> you're opening yourself up to that. And I understand that the very first fan mail I ever got when I started writing Motherload told me I was a terrible mother. The very first letter I got 20 years ago is you're a terrible mother. I thought, well, I'm done. <laughs> so everyone's allowed to say what they want that I would rather people we're reading and being angry, that's fine. At least they're reading and considering there might be another side to this. I find what's interesting sometimes is I'll get differing opinions within a family, like members of the family will you know, contact me. So I don't think anyone should believe that, and including me, that their opinion is absolute because it's not. There's different sides to this. And we're seeing fewer kids get their licenses. And I remember we were at 15 and a half, like just going, come on, I got it. You know, the only way I'm going to get out of here. Kids have their phones. They talk the whole time. They have entire relationships online. And in two weeks, they're blowing up what takes us a year to blow up in grade nine or 10. So it's a different approach to cars. And they also see the expense and insurance is just insane and getting worse and worse. So I think generations, we do get changed that way. They understand why their parents have a car, but a lot of them are going, I'm at school, I'm living somewhere, they look at how much it costs to keep a car on the road, they're going, forget it. And again, depends on where you live. If you're rural, you, you, there's no transit, there's no option, you have to do that, I understand, if your job requires it. So I'm not anti-car at all. I'm anti-big car if you don't need it, yep, I'll die on that hill, because too many people are dying on that hill. So I will put my money where my mouth is on that one. If people get angry or upset with me, we need to change. It's not working. Death rates are going up. It's bad. Our streets are dangerous. So if what I'm saying is so wrong, what do they propose? That it keeps getting worse and we're okay with that? This vision zero nonsense that's been incorporated? Any Like Toronto, what a joke. Vision zero. You know what? It's lip service. They keep reinventing it. We've had three incarnations, I think, in the past 10 years. They don't care. Unless you're going to get drivers to buy in, and planners to buy in and politicians to buy in. There's no point in telling pedestrians, hey, we're going to make you safer. All you're doing is giving them a false sense of security and hope, and you're not delivering. We need buy-in from every sector to commit to wanting safer streets for drivers too. Like if you just hit a car a little bit, it's going to cost you a lot of money to fix it. So you don't want to do that. We know traffic circles are far, far safer for drivers. There's no head-ons. There's no making left turns. They're safer. They take up more land. People get confused. It's a change. We're not used to it. Well, you, you can't argue that you're way less likely to die in a traffic circle than at an intersection. Oh, don't get me started as, a, as an ex, <laughs> expat British person. <laughs> you're singing from my song sheet there. Um, yeah, well, I, I think we're probably uh, drawing to a, a close here. Thanks so much, uh, Lorraine. I mean, I think... Yeah, I mean, I, and and as a concluding point, yeah, the, the the fact that vision zero and climate emergency are two of the most used phrases by every municipal government in Ontario, 
simultaneously with being both subjects where they have no intention of really doing very much mm -hmm. uh, the vast majority of the time is it just sums up so much of the kind of shameful behavior of our municipalities that yeah every every municipality is a climate emergency we've got we've got a big emergency going on uh here's a budget zero dollars will that fix it <laughs> um uh, unbelievable but anyway uh Thanks so much, Lorraine. Really appreciate speaking to you as uh, always. And uh, yeah, thanks very much. Thanks, Roland. Thanks, Joe. That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns or ideas for future episodes to our email info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favourite podcast app.